This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Stephen Horwat, who just increased his pledge amount. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 533 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500. So definitely check that out if you missed it. And today on the show, we'll be discussing Season 1 of the Disney Plus series Andor, a prequel to the 2016 film Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 34th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels, and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor, The Silver Shooter, the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be back. The next up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 27th appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers' Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's been a television writer, producer, and script supervisor for shows such as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Chew, and WWE's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown, and she's currently a writer for Pixelberry Studios. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Matt London, making his 18th appearance on the show. He's the author of the Eighth Continent novels, a series of science fiction eco-adventures, and the interactive novel You Are the Classics, Treasure Islands. His short fiction appears in The Living Dead 2, Daily Science Fiction, and Space and Time. So, Matt, welcome to the show. It's great to be back. <laughs> yeah, so Matt used to be our most uh, frequent <laughs> guest. At one time. Now I'm not even the most frequent on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> by, a, by a lot. <laughs> But it's great to have you back, Matt. Yeah, so, and so the Thank last you. time you were on the show, I think – oh, no, the last time was Rick and Morty, but I think the last time before that was uh, Rogue One. I think I was having an aneurysm about episode seven the last time I was on the yeah. show. <laughs> um, so I have not talked to you about Star Wars since – In a while. Rogue One. So yeah. I wanted to start on just uh, what has been kind of your overall feelings about Star Wars leading into Andor? Um, well – so I think maybe for context to start, you know, I'm a lifelong diehard Star Wars freak. Um, you know, I read all of the, what was once called the expanded universe novels, now the legends novels, um, and was pretty deep into the franchise, just as like a passionate fan, played a lot of the tabletop RPG, the Star Wars tabletop RPG, um, multiple of them actually. So it was it was a big part of sort of like my 
interaction with science fiction and fantasy from a very early age. Um, but I think I should probably also say that, you know, I'm not somebody who's precious about the franchise or territorial about it. I think that a lot of the things that have happened in the last, you know, 10, 10 years or so, um, that have really led to the franchise becoming more diverse, becoming, you know, not just in terms of the, you know, the people that are creating the series and starring in the series, um, but the kinds of stories that they're telling as well. Um, I think that's great. I think it's, you know, the, the galaxy is big enough for everyone. So I'm not really, I'm not one of those kinds of fanboys. Um, but I do feel like basically everything that the series has done post return of the Jedi has struggled, um, to sort of live up to, you know, people's childhood expectations of what the, what this, what the stories are supposed to be or what the, the franchise is supposed to be. Well, well, let me ask you, I mean, just to give you an idea, I didn't like force awakens or the rise of Skywalker. Yeah. I really liked the last Jedi. Uh, I really liked rogue one. Um, I really liked the Mandalorian, but yeah. then um, after the, I, I just heard that Book of Boba Fett wasn't that good, and so I didn't even watch, yeah, the Boba Fett or the Obi Wan Kenobi well, shows. Yeah, I mean, I I've seen them all, and I, I, you know, I I think that there are definite um, differences in quality. I'm not particularly, you know, I'm, I'm sort of take it or leave it about all three of the sequels. Um, that series felt like. It was like, you know, sort of concepted in a boardroom where no one agreed with each other. And <laughs> it shows on the screen. Um, so, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of, I sort of, I don't think about them. <laughs> I don't think about them very much. Um, but, I, but that does sort of free me up to absorb each new piece of content uh, independently of anything else in, in the series. And, and I, and I, I've, I've enjoyed doing that because it's helped me kind of connect with new characters like in the Mandalorian. Um, you know, I think that both book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan had, had some really cool things about it. Seeing some of these actors from the prequel trilogy come back and get to, you know, work with new writers, get to work on new kinds of stories, revisiting some of these old characters, really, really cool to see. Um, even if, you know, some of the, some of the pacing in them to me felt a little uneven. Um, and then, yeah, now Andor, to me... Wait, don't, let's not I, get into Andor just yet. Okay, well, anyway, I, I was going to say that there are good things about these series, but, you know, they have been sort of hit or miss. Yeah. Okay, so let's get Andrea in here, too. So, Andrea, so one reason I wanted you for this panel is because I think you said in a recent episode that Rogue One was your favorite Star Wars movie. Is that right? Yep, 100%. Um, and I will die on that hill. I know some people don't like it for some reason but yes absolutely 100 percent think it is the best i mean you know uh childhood nostalgia aside i will always love the original star wars um but just as an adult and i think it is because i'm coming at rogue one as an adult um it's my favorite star wars movie because it's star wars for adults it actually is about war and the realities of war and i i i i I know you like Last Jedi. It did not hit me well, um, specifically because it still felt like a kid's movie to me. Um, Rogue One blew all that away. Um, 
Rogue One had real characters and real situations that shows the price of war. Um, and that was why it was, that is why it's my favorite and not even just my favorite, but I just think it's the best one because it's, it's real. It's about real situations and what happens in war and the sacrifices you make. Um, so that, that is my <laughs> stand on Rogue One. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so had, had you, how much Star Wars stuff had you been following the last few years? Had you watched Mandalorian, Obi-Wan, I, any of that I, stuff? For some reason, I didn't. I watched like the first couple episodes in Mandalorian and I don't know why it just didn't hit with me. I did watch Obi-Wan and was not happy with it uh, for very specific reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- those reasons being um, I I hate spunky little girl characters. <laughs> it, it was, ju- it was a kid show and it just, I wanted to, that kid, that kid, um, just drove me crazy. And I'm sorry, like, and, and here's, here's where I'm also, you know, again, coming at it from, I'm an adult and I have experiences. And, you know, the thing about Leia is she's a smart woman. Um, and she, it, the, the child that they portrayed is a spoiled little girl who goes running off because she wants to. Um, and she doesn't want to do, you know, what she has to do. And in the process, gets a whole bunch of people killed and that is never addressed and she's just this cute little girl and everybody's supposed to love her i'm sorry she's a spoiled child who got a bunch of people killed because she didn't want to go to some thing with her parents and it just drove me crazy and she's walking through the whole show going spin me spin me make me float what the? <laughs> i'm i'm trying desperately not to say the word fuck but there you go um <laughs> I, it absolutely drove me crazy, made me actually angry. When you have this much money and also a great cast, and then you put as your center character a spoiled child, and that makes me crazy. And that's where I think Disney screws this whole thing up. And, you know, and I know, I'm not going to start talking about Ander, but that is so much different. And I'm shocked, shocked that Disney put out this show because it is, it's not a kid show. And I'm saying that as a good thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I have been saying, if you, you can go back and listen to all our previous Star Wars panels. I mean, I've been saying for years that I, what I want is, you know, Star Wars for adults, you know, like that's dark yeah. and it takes itself seriously, mm-hmm. uh, that isn't yep. full of fan service and jokiness, you know, and yep. so, um, even the stuff I liked, you know, like the Mandalorian, I mean, I said, like, this is a great, nostalgic, fun throwback mm-hmm. to old time television kind of show. And if you're into that, which I, you know, in, yeah. in this case I am, like it's very enjoyable, but it's not 100% what I want. What I want is, like you're saying, mm-hmm. the non, the Star Wars not for kids. Um, right. So maybe that will give people an idea of how I responded to Andor. Um <laughs> But um, I want to get Aaron in here too, and I know a lot about how Aaron feels about Star Wars because she was on all our <laughs> solo panel and Mandalorian <laughs> panels and stuff like that. But um, Aaron, is there anything else to add to what we've said already about sort of how you were feeling going into Andor, what your expectations were? Well, in fact, I had no expectations. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, I had no intention of watching Andor, um, and I had no intention of watching it because I am. Hot and cold on the Mandalorian, 
I am, I did not enjoy the book of Boba Fett. I didn't dislike it, but I just found it, you know, quite dull and grainy. Um, and I had heard nothing good about the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. And I thought, okay, well, I'm kind of done with this. Um, and I, I just don't think I need to put myself through another one of these Star Wars shows that has me rolling my eyes for most of it. Um, <laughs> so to the extent that I had any expectations, um, they were set by you, uh, Dave, when you reached out to me for the panel and you said, and I think it was just in its entirety, it's good. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> and I yeah. thought, and I thought, um, well, that's interesting. It's definitely worth watching then. Um, and, and I really, I really can't thank you enough because, uh, I wouldn't have watched it and I'm so, so glad I did. Yeah. And actually I can't thank enough, uh, our listener, Rory Carroll, who was on our, um, uh, Netflix dark panels. Because mm-hmm. I, I had also, I had no intention of watching this. I mean, it's not like, I mean, and I liked Rogue One, you know, a lot, but I just thought the idea of a Cassian Andor I show. I liked it too, but it, it didn't, it wasn't memorable. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you can, if people are curious, you can go back and listen to our panel on that. And I mean, I had a, a lot of thoughts about it, but I mean, overall, I, I thought I th- it was in like my top three or four probably of Star Wars movies. Um, but, um, but I d- even, with that, it wasn't like I I heard that that they were doing an Andor. I think originally it was a movie. I forget, but uh, or maybe it was a, a show from the beginning. But when when they said there's going to be an Andor thing, I'm like, it's not. I was like, this just seems desperate, you know. Like, do we really need a prequel <laughs> to a prequel of a character? This is like very minor character, you know. Um, and I was a little overdosed on Star Wars, and I'd heard that Obi Wan and Boba Fett those shows weren't good. And so I didn't watch them. And so I really had no intention of watching this at all. And Rory Carroll uh, messaged me and said, like, you know, you got to watch Andor. It's so good. Like he really sort of twisted my arm to, to watch it. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll watch, I'll watch it, you know? And I, I just, wa- I started watching the first episode and I ended up watching the entire season in one day. You know, I didn't, uh, I never paused it to, you know, check my email or, take a nap or anything you know it was just like <laughs> non-stop mainly to end yeah totally engrossed the entire time so so that's my experience with andor uh so matt what were you uh what were kind of what were kind of your initial uh impressions of of this andor show i mean it was immediately so different in terms of the cinematography the pacing mm. the writing the writing mm. is so good on this show mm. um there are scenes and monologues and and the kinds of language that you would just never expect to hear in a like a mass market piece of sci-fi content i don't think mm-hmm. um it it's striking and you know i i actually thought a lot about the showrunner tony gilroy's film michael clayton um which is a great little movie and and cuz that movie is also kind of about um, trying to make a difference, the banality of evil, um, mm-hmm. murderous corporations, um, and 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 but the aesthetic of it is it has a very quiet pacing, even though there's just this undercurrent of menace. And I felt like from the jump, the Andor show captured that quite strikingly. Um, so it immediately felt different. Like all of my sort of like author buzzers were going off. <laughs> um, it just felt like this is a 
this is craftsmanship that I'm not used to seeing uh, on TV. Yeah. Uh, it's filmmaking. Yeah. Just, it's filmmaking. I'll, I'll just say like, you know, if you're listening, if you haven't watched the show and you're just listening to this to see like, oh, is this something I should be interested in? Yes, 100% it is. And I would definitely recommend going and watching it before listening to the rest of this spoiler filled discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we could just get that uh, <laughs> out of the way. Pause it. I, go watch 14 yeah. hours of TV uninterrupted yeah. like Dave did. And come yeah. Back. <laughs> and I also I, I'd like to add that it's not just good in a in in the Star Wars universe. It's it's good overall. You do not have to be a Star Wars fan, I don't think, to watch it. It's just gripping as it, it's its own thing, um, which I think is a hallmark of a great show. You don't have to really yeah. love Star Wars or be a fan. It it is it is its you- own. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to build on that and say, I don't think you even really have to love sci-fi. Um, I think yeah. if you like spy drama, if you are interested in revolution, if you are interested in mm-hmm. empire, if you are interested in you know geopolitics in that sense or history yeah. in that sense, this show has a lot to offer. And it's it's not just Star Wars for grownups. It's sci-fi for grownups. Yeah, hundred um, percent. To me, it had a lot of the same elements as The Expanse in terms of complexity and nuance. Um, but it just it was done to a quality that that The Expanse didn't always manage to hit. It did sometimes, and then other times fell short. And this was just it's got all of the sort of it's got the top quality acting and the top quality sets and the, the costumes blew me away and all the sort of bells and whistles that yeah. you're used to from Star Wars. But for once, with a meaty, juicy story behind it that would have been good yeah. set in any universe. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, yeah. let me just say who, who T- Tony Gilroy is. So he's been a screenwriter in Hollywood for 30 years, uh, starting off, as far as I can tell, with The Cutting Edge in 1992. And he's worked on a lot of high-profile projects, Dolores Claiborne, Proof of Life, Armageddon. Uh, he wrote all the Bourne Identity movies. Um, and he wrote and directed The Bourne Legacy, and as Matt mentioned, he wrote and directed uh, Michael Clayton, this movie with George Clooney that won all sorts of awards. And his connection, and he's not a Star Wars fan. I mean, he's been pretty uh, blunt about the fact that he was not, he was never really into Star Wars, not that interested in it. Um, but they brought him in when Rogue One was kind of uh, floundering, and he kind of came in and was kind of the, um, people say he was sort of the uncredited like director i mean they they reshot a lot of the movie and and he's sort of credited with with saving it and so he had a lot of goodwill uh over at lucasfilm due to that and i think that that's part of the reason he was able to that they they kind of took a hands-off approach uh with this andor show and just kind of let him do what he wanted um i think also because he wasn't using any really major characters so they weren't as concerned about him <laughs> you know messing you know messing up uh one of the major characters um i i read somewhere that somebody said that the two show obi-wan and um and andor were both in production at the same time and and obi-wan was the one they were focused on because of that they thought that was going to be their big thing and so they didn't pay too much attention to andor and that's what made it great because there wasn't a bunch of nincompoop meddling you know <laughs> people yeah. meddling yeah sticking their paws in there and screwing everything up um and it shows ip yeah. yeah 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 exactly it do- it does really feel like it is told from a single voice 
Um, yeah. That, that there's this unity in the storytelling um, and that none of the set pieces feel out of place in a yeah. way that I think is hard with a big budget mass market show. Um, but at the same time, you know, you mentioned that Tony Gilroy is not the biggest Star Wars fan, but there's somebody on the writing staff that certainly is because there are some incredibly deep cuts um, that are sort of throwaway lines in the show that harken back to, I mean, like super obscure <laughs> lore arcana um, from Star <laughs> Wars past, ancillary products and things like that. Um, you know, even just like dwelling on Mon Mothma's uh, Chandrillan, uh, you know, heritage is pretty remarkable that that's like Chandril is a planet that's been floating around since maybe the, the, a new hope novelization, um, you know, back in, you know, in the seventies. Um, so, I mean, incredible to see how it feels both really disconnected in some ways from the majority of the star Wars canon, but in other ways, it's like there, there are those crumbs for sort of like really diehard lore fanatics. Yeah, I feel like he might have become more of a Star Wars fan in the course of working on this show. Because if you listen to interviews with him talking about this show, he's obviously so excited about this show and just ecstatic yeah. with how it yeah. came out. You know, it's interesting. I want. I, I wonder also if this might not be like George Lucas's favorite piece of Star Wars <laughs> yeah. material. Because like there is a lot of there's there's a lot of politics in yeah in in the original conceit. Um, you know, there's that meeting that that's that's alluded to in quite dramatically in in Andor. This meeting on the Death Star in a New Hope, where there's this you know this ring of suits and they're all bickering with one another, and you know uh, Tarkin and Vader walk in and kind of quell the the debate. And um, you know they're talking about dissolving the Republic. They're talking about the Emperor assuming more direct control. Right? It's like th- that. Th- that boardroom um, is not new to Star Wars, um, but at the same time, there's there's some things in the show that feel to me really different from um, you know what you would expect. There's there's almost no aliens, um, very few space battles. Now, are those important for telling a good story? No, but they to me at least they're things that that say like, hey, this is this is a star war. This is something that you can't do that, that you don't do in other big, big sci-fi franchises in quite the same way. There's a very specific aesthetic to it. And there's also, I did feel like some let me of just that say was quickly, missing. Let me just say yeah. also, there's no mention of the force. I don't think the word force is mm. used. In no. Or Jedi. Season. No, no Jedi. Yep. Yeah. And it, it's funny. Some, I, I, I may during the course of this conversation reference several, quite brilliant Twitter takes. I don't have all of those tweets at my fingertips. So I apologize <laughs> for, if I'm not attributing things to people. Um, but yes, I mean, somebody uh, I remember called out while the show was airing that like, I wonder how these, these like salt of the earth rebels felt about a bunch of like religious fanatics uh, <laughs> you with superpowers <laughs> co-opting their rebellion for their own family, uh, family feud. <laughs> um and, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I actually do feel more empathy for, you know, the people that are getting uh, pummeled in this show than, than yeah. any of the sort of sweet, you know, epic heroes of the, the main canon. Well, I felt like, you know, 
when your story is focused on the Jedi and the Empire, it's like, you know, the two big the knights, um, you know, the king and the knights and th- that kind of story where it's focused on the royalty. This was about the peasants. Um, and I think that is an important story to tell. Right. Well, the question the question I think the show asks is how do you get out of a totalitarian dictatorship? Yeah. And, oh, the, yeah. and the answer that Star Wars gives you is magic. Magic is how you get out of a totalitarian <laughs> dictatorship. <laughs> This show yeah. says, no, it's us. We're the only way that we can get out of a dictatorship. Uh, and it's a very yeah. different, a very different message, right? It's, it's got a much more nuanced view of, of us. And so, yes, the peasants feature. But what I like about this, um, particularly as a student of politics and a, and a student of revolution, it's, they've, it's not just the people in the trenches. You're also seeing how there are key pieces necessary within the elites and within the apparatus itself that are essential to a successful overthrow of tyranny. So you've got Mon Mothma, who's a diplomat. She's an ambassador. Um, she's right in the, in the middle of that sort of uh, decadent rubber stamping um, elite that is happening on Coruscant. You've got, we don't really know what the story is behind uh, Luthen in terms of his background, but you've got this guy who's also part of the elites, the cultural elites in the capital. Um, you've got people who are embedded within um, the ISB, which is basically the, the internal security bureau of the of the empire. So there are also people at the level of political and security elites who are key to making this happen. They're actually the ones moving the pieces around the board. And I think that's a much more nuanced view than this idea that it's it's can only be accomplished by by sort of a scrappy rabble at the grassroots level because um you know we we've seen in terms of history and we see all the time um how that doesn't. That's not enough. It's essential. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I think, as much as there's clearly some Star Wars fans on the writing team, there's also people on the writing team who are students of spy novels like um, mm. John Le Carré, and who are students of politics and students of history who are really looking at how revolution has happened here on Earth and and what that yeah. looks like. <laughs> and and people who understand history and the and how empires build. Um, cause exactly. I, I, you know, just, yeah. you know, looking at it, you can see the rent, you know, the, the bits and pieces of the Nazis and the Roman empire and how they conquered. Um, a lot of it's in there. Th- those, these people knew history and they used it. And also what the front lines of imperialism look like, including now mm-hmm. there were, you know, as a UN person, I, I have to say there were a few exchanges in the Mon Mothma storyline. Well, not just hers actually that were cringingly accurate (laughs) Um, and just yeah kind of i'm very curious about actually who's on the writer's team and what their backgrounds are yeah i definitely want to hear more aaron about you know how what you thought of this show based on your un experiences but i also i just want to set up what the the story is if anyone listening doesn't ignored (laughs) you're saying we got ahead of we got ahead of it a little bit here (laughs) ignored my uh, spoiler warning um but so yeah so so the main character in this is cassian andor who we see and who dies in dramatic fashion in, in Rogue One. And so we basically trace his journey from a child growing up on uh, this planet Canari, where he's part of this sort of like tribe of lost boys kind of um, kids mm-hmm. who somehow ended up stranded on this planet. And he gets uh, taken in by this woman, Marva, right? And, um, and raised on this planet called Ferex. 
And then in the presence of the story, he's traveling around looking for his sister who, uh, who he was left behind on this planet and who he hasn't seen since they were kids. And he ends up, uh, being involved in sort of recruited, uh, by forces of the rebellion to engage in a big heist. And then he gets, uh, there's a, uh, he gets thrown in prison and there's a prison break kind of situation. So that's the Cassian Andor story. And then there's all these other characters that people have mentioned. And one thing I thought was interesting about this is I, I felt like the secondary characters, you know, the show is called Andor, but, and he's in any other show, he would be a really interesting character. But in, in this, I felt like he was almost overshadowed by all these secondary characters and bit parts, all of whom were just absolutely fascinating to me. So yeah. I'm just curious what people mm-hmm. think about that. Did, did, did the I- secondary characters almost interesting more show. than the yeah. yeah than the ostensible hero they they do um but i personally am okay with that if i i trust these guys these writers enough to play the long game on this one um and if season 1 has cassian as kind of a reactive protagonist who's just <laughs> sort of being buffeted by the forces around him i suspect we'll see that yeah. change um, and I have a lot yeah. of patience for that. It irritates me actually in storytelling when, when our protagonist starts out completely chock full of agency, tick, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, driving the story, tick, because I don't think yeah. real life often works that way, particularly when you've got a hero who doesn't have superpowers. Um, they have to sort of find themselves in this maelstrom somehow. And so I have a lot of patience for, especially with the subtlety of the acting that Diego Luna brings and just just a, in parentheses, the acting on this show is incredible, um, yeah. particularly in comparison to the other Star Wars shows. And I think part of that yeah. is the performances, but undoubtedly a huge part of that is the script. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But anyway, so so he's got this sort of subtlety and this very sort of quiet, expressive way about him. And I think I'm waiting for him to pop, and I think it's deliberate rather than accidental. I, I agree with that 100%. He is he spends the whole show reacting to everything and then at the end he makes that decision. You watch him make this decision. The the last thing I wrote down as as I was watching the the final episode was this is like the best origin story of all time. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, they have that that uh, I use this phrase a lot. It turns out um, narrative patience, um, where they they actually give <laughs> yeah. you like rather than and I have to say that um for me, that very first episode, the first half of that first episode, I was kind of like, oh, God, I wasn't sure. And because we kick off with a flashback, which I have limited patience for in general, but also seems to be very popular in the Star Wars shows. They do a lot of storytelling through flashback, and it can be quite effective in limited doses, but I think they over-rely on it. And then they do a flashback to this this incredibly overused device of the idyllic hunter-gatherer society that's, you know, endures some sort of horrible thing at the hands of either a, you know, evil corporation or the empire or both. Um, And while I totally acknowledge that's been a huge feature of the history of empire, um, it's been done so, so, so often that avatar storyline and rarely is it done well it's always done in a way that's so two-dimensional and simplistic mm-hmm. that to me, it's kind of offensive to everyone concerned. And I was so afraid yeah. that that's where we were going with this. Um, and I was really, really glad that they, that they didn't go that route. Um, so Matt, I want to get Matt back in here. So Matt, what did you think of um, 
yeah of of all these characters like yeah i mean similarly i think that you put a good script in the hands of a great cast and you get magic you know there's a um there's a lot of classically trained british actors in this cast um and it shows there's a technicality to to the performances that i think is really um remarkable um you know i think that the whole supporting cast like who whoever's on screen is the person stealing the show um you know (laughs) and 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 in some cases you know i think particularly about like kyle soller who plays cyril karn and um yeah uh and uh uh, denise uh go who plays deidre miro the the inspector right um those two have a really tough um like it's very challenging to deliver that kind of like deliver a character that you know is going to be unlikable without it being <laughs> like mustache twirling. Um, yes. Yep. And, and I wouldn't say that I ever felt empathy for them, but, but definitely was captivated by them well, and appreciated just how like the, the level of subtlety it takes to build that kind yeah. of disdain in an audience can only be, next to impossible to execute um and i thought that they both did an incredible job you know there's there's so much subtext in the dialogue of andor um Mm -hmm. there's so much communicated in the silences there's whole romantic relationships communicated in silences in the show you know (laughs) yeah and 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 it's i am not shipping that it's really it's really well i was actually not even i wasn't even talking about the two of them but that's really yeah really gross um but uh but but yeah i mean they it really really stand out performances um i think my favorite kind of like under the radar performance in the show is Catherine hunter who plays cyril's mom um (laughs) oh my god i mean this is oh this is a woman who who um, not only stole every scene that she was in in the uh, oh HBO series God. Rome, but also absolutely is the best part of the um, Joel Cohen Macbeth movie that was released recently. She plays all three witches, um, and then in on the London stage, she's she's played Richard the Third and Puck and all of these sort of like classic Shakespearean characters. So mm-hmm. even though it's this very small part, you can't help but hang on every word that she yeah. says well, let, let um, me say about those two characters uh cyril yeah. karn and uh what was her name deidre deidre miro yeah miro uh those were my two favorite characters in the show and these are both these are sort of villains <laughs> they're agents of the empire yeah yeah um but they're portrayed so well and I, I i can't even think of a character like cyril that i've seen before where he's this um sort of really like fastidious uptight yeah like huge chip on his shoulder because he's been raised by this overbearing mother who puts him (laughs) down constantly. And he, you know, takes the mission really seriously. Uh, Everyone is always goofing off and he's trying to always get them to do their jobs and doesn't fit in with the, you know, with his coworkers. Yeah. He's he's, a, he's a total drip. I mean, the two, two characters from, like pop culture that come to mind immediately, not, not really pop culture, but from, from, from mass media that come to mind for me are inspector Javert from Les Miserables. Um, and, um, and detective Exley from, uh, is it Exley from, uh, LA confidential? Um, yeah. The guy Pierce care. The guy Pierce care. Yeah. The guy Pierce. And 
those I see both and, of those characters in him in a lot of ways. And I think actually it's like you see both sides of it, right? It's like I think that's where if you were to find empathy, I think that's where you would find it in the you know, those two characters like one of those is absolutely the villain, the other one's portrayed more as more as a you know unlikely hero, but in in both cases, I think that there there's a lot there there are echoes there. I think that for me personally, though, like I could see how normally, and maybe even it was the intent of the 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 storytellers here for 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 the show to build that kind of empathy for the character. But I think well, that in the current in the current global climate in 2022 2023, uh, just impossible for me to go that wait, way. Let, let me just say because I, I did have a lot of empathy for Cyril. In yeah. the scene where, you know, he, so he like sort of goes, you know, his, his boss tells him basically don't get involved in this. And he completely disobeys yep. and, and, you know, goes out, exceeds his authority to, to try to solve this murder and ends up completely fucking everything up Gets and getting a bunch, a bunch of people, of people killed. killed. Yeah. And he's standing yeah. there over the flaming ruins of this, yeah. uh, bombed out car. Yeah. And it's just like Luke. To me, it was just like Luke looking at the burning you know, moisture farm on Tatooine. Like this is his origin story. This is the, you know, the wound that's going to drive him for the rest of his life. And but, but it's a self-inflicted wound, which is more interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's how he processes it. He processes it like a raging yes. narcissist. It's not, you yeah. know, what have I done these poor people? It's, oh no, my career is going I'm down in, in trouble. Flames. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you can see it um, in his face, and and his whole thing, his whole thing is this drive to prove himself. But um, yeah. yeah, he's he's an interesting character, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of him. I have for me the in terms of the the sort of secondary characters that stand out. I have to say, Andy Circus blew my mind in this one. <laughs> I've seen him yeah. in so many things, and he's always good. Um, one of the things that makes him good is often how over the top he can be. <laughs> and there is a subtlety, a heartbreaking nuance to this performance that I have never seen from him that I had never would have guessed he was capable of. And just every scene he was in, I was just riveted to him, just the the small things going on in his face <laughs> um, and just the the pain behind his eyes. And I just like, I just, yeah, shout out to that because it was an incredible performance. Yeah. I think if somebody's going to win an Emmy on the show, it's going to be him. Um, I, I don't even know if it's the best performance on the show, but I think that the the stars are aligned, so to speak. That, that that's the direction that they would go with the nominations. But but be- before we move off, I want to talk to more more about the Deidre character, who yeah. is the ISB intelligence analyst, um, who ends up going out into the field. Um, so so Andrea, what do you like? Tell us about Deidre. What did you think of that character? Uh Every scene that she was in and every scene that's on in that, you know, that boardroom, um, everything about that just screamed, you know, and anybody who's ever worked in an office, it's like the backstabbing office politics. Um, and I felt this about every character on the show is that you know exactly who they are. They are, they're, you know, she is the, the climber, um, the one who know, who thinks she knows better than everybody else. And she is right, but, but you can also see the downfall in her um her method um it, she's horrific but also you know i know exactly who she is um it, it it was there's so many times i wrote down when i was watching this like office politics office politics office politics <laughs> she's you know she's the ultimate player uh who ends up also fucking it up at the end um 
right? Yeah. She gives she gives Cyril so much crap for yeah. being a screw yes. up and making stupid mis- stupid reckless mistakes, and then goes out and makes the exact same mistake. Ex- same yep, person. exactly. Yes. Yeah. Which, yeah. He's which just I a little more it, pathetic than she is. <laughs> Cyril, yeah. Well, and and that's one of the reasons why in that in that last episode when it all does come crashing down for her, her terror when she's almost yeah. torn limb yeah. from limb was really affecting because it's the first time we've seen her lose that yes. icy, calm, ruthless demeanor that she's had for the whole show. And she's physically shaking and she's come undone. And And it's one of those moments where I really noticed the quality of the performance too, because those two characters vie for the most punchable face on television. <laughs> and it's nothing to do with their actual faces. <laughs> It's, it's really just to do with the yeah. performance and how you just want to punch them every time you see it's, them. It's that's kind of the point I was trying to get to before. Is like it's really hard to execute that as an actor. Like it's yeah. much easier to be an over the top villain, so that yeah. the audience knows, like, oh, it's I'm watching a I'm watching a Greek play. I know this person's the villain because they've got the frowny face. You know, it's mm-hmm. like yeah. no. In fact. To, to build that kind of subtle disdain to remind people of the terrible coworkers they've had in their lives. Yeah. Like yeah. It, that's, that's an incredible, incredible talent. So you know, major, yeah. major kudos well, to both writers. I think and actors. they take, they take these characters and, you know, we're talking about mustache twirling villains. These are villains, but we see, why they're, you know, we understand them. We know them. We, they make them real people and we hate them, but we, uh, we know who they are. And that's, yeah. I think, the key to it, you know? There, there was yeah. a description I heard once of a deep character, which is that this is a character who can do something that completely surprises you, but is completely consistent with everything that you know about them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the show is yeah. full of deep characters. And in so many, science fiction shows and star wars shows the characters are are one dimensional in the sense that in every scene they have the exact same personality and you never see them in any moment that doesn't that's that's different from that and and this you see these characters in these private vulnerable moments where you see different different but completely consistent sides to them right but Um, they also have um and i think this sounds so obvious when you say it as a writer or as as a critic but it's it's not done as often or as well as it should be they have coherent motivations you understand mm-hmm. what drives their decision making framework and so even when they when they surprise you you can still see where that decision fits on their decision tree you understand <laughs> what what has led them to to make those choices and i think what this show has done really well in terms of making those deep characters is on the one hand to andrea's point you recognize them from the real world. Mm. They are an avatar of something you have seen before and that yeah. resonates on a human level. The other for me is I think they've done a really good job of understanding sort of who are the who are the characters um within a bureaucracy or within a, an, an imperial structure who sort of actually make the world turn because like like any other structure an empire is a pyramid. Um, and mm-hmm. so the, the, the emperor sits on top, obviously, but what makes a government of any kind work is the technocrats and the apparatchiks and the yep. bureaucrats. And, and they have a variety of different motivations. And one of the things that they, they've got two characters who showcase very clearly is the degree to which personal ambition yeah. is the sort of the, the be all and end all of motivations for these characters. What I hope we see going forward is 
um, at least a couple of characters who are doing the wrong things for the right reasons, because mm-hmm. imperialism was overwhelmingly uh, a project that was enacted by a bunch of people who legitimately how thought they were doing the right thing or contributing to the right thing. And their worldview was totally fucked up. And it was part of a, um, a value system that, that we reject now. Um, well, at least most of us do. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, well, <laughs> not everyone. Most of us do, or I at least hope most of us do. But at any rate, um, when you drill down to the individual level, it's a, it's a bit like religion, right? When you drill, drill down to the individual level of the individual priest or the individual, uh, minister or whatever, you have people who legitimately think they're doing the right thing for their, for their family, for their society, for whatever. I mean, and they so end up did, did doing you not evil feel, things in that name. Did you not feel that was the case with Cyril? Cause I got the feeling he was sort of an idealist. <laughs> I personally might think that per- he's, in- he's individually ambitious. He's out to prove himself yes. for himself. He but he does no believe compassion. in the he, he does no believe empathy. in the mission of the empire, though, right? I mean, he thinks they're doing that. He's yeah. he's legitimately on that side, right? He, th- there is that moment where they sort of fan, like the two of them fan out over how much they love the empire, <laughs> right? It's like <laughs> it's true, but I guess what I'm talking about is people's like individuals' value systems and their morals, um, and you know whether it's bringing someone to God or civilizing the savage with order or whatever, you know, horrible, like imperialistic attitudes they brought to bear. These, these people thought that they were not only helping themselves and their society, but they were helping the societies that they conquered. Their, their, their worldview was so blinkered that they actually genuinely believed that. And I don't know that Cyril has even interrogated that. He understands how he fits into a system that works for him. Yeah. But to what degree has he queried whether that system works for the the rest of uh, the planets under the empire's thrall, I haven't seen anything from him that suggests that he has. Yeah, I agree with that. He, it's it's all about ambition for him. That was that's my complete take on him as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, I also think that the show does a really good job of highlighting why empire is bad, also for the people who are benefiting from it. That like there's so much psychic damage happening to these imperial officers. You can see it in like the way that they deal with things, or you know, get killed by rebels, right? Because their bosses want to make more money. Um, yeah. It. It. I. You know. I think there is a message in that um, that I find pretty interesting, and and I think worthy of even more exploration. Right. Mm. It's like yes, even for imperials, empire is very bad. Yeah. Well, I think uh, there's a. a- a real element of that, just having worked in offices my entire life with a bunch of characters, everything about these people was about covering your own ass. There right. was no feeling of like unity in what they believed in, other than my ambition is driving me and I I don't I want to cover my ass and that's it. And that's every office I've ever worked in. There is no unity. It's about me. Right. <laughs> I also want to bring in, as we mentioned, the Luthan and Mon Mothma characters. Mm. And another moment that, you know, of the kind I was talking about, where you see someone in this surprising, vulnerable moment that struck me so much was where Luthan, who's this sort of spy master who's setting this rebellion in, in motion, and he's been acting for years behind the scenes, pulling strings, and he's finally about to, you know, set in motion this mission, which is going to ca- attract so much attention that it's going to be the end of his ability to act in secret the way that he has all these years. And he's sort of sitting there waiting for the reports to come in, you know, kind of the night before and, and kind of like, mm-hmm. geez, 
like what have I done? Like, is this is this really what I want? It's too late now. Uh, and and just for a moment like that, for for a, a character who up till then has seemed so uh, in, in charge, yeah, yeah. 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 The other one that I found really affecting for that character, and it was kind of almost a a cheer out loud moment for me in terms of just the quality of the writing was when he loses his shit with the guy he's got embedded Mm -hmm. in the ISB. Um, The guy who's embedded in the ISB is, is really feeling the heat. He's upset because um, some of the people in the field are about to lose their lives and, um, and Luthen's character is like, well, that's, you know, the cost of war. And yes, our brothers are going to have to take one for the team on this. And, and the guy from ISB says, you know, how can you be so cold about this? What have you sacrificed? And, and Luthen mm-hmm. gives him a long and just absolutely devastating list of the things that he sacrificed, which mm-hmm. basically boils down to my soul. Um, and the other thing that I really like about this is not only do you have some nuance on the empire side, but you have nuance on the rebel side and you are seeing the kinds of horrible moral choices that they have to make mm-hmm. and the very cold and ruthless choices that they have to make in order to be successful. And it is a, a study in the ends justify the means on both sides. Yeah. And, and yeah. that, oh, that's that what, is that's- also really accurate. <laughs> yeah. That's what I felt through the, the entire show is there. Every there's everything in every other Star Wars is there's black and there's white. There's no crossover. Everything in this show is about moral ambiguity. It's about the gray tones in every single situation. Um, and that was, that's for me is, is feels like that's why this is an adult show. Nothing is black and white in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that were yeah. very few things or very, very few people. Everybody makes choices and. Some of those choices hurt other people, but that's the way life is. And that's the way war is, you know? Yeah. And then you become a bean counter. You become a galactic bean counter of other people's lives. And it's, it's just really, it's very, it's very cool to see. He actually reminded me a little of, I can't remember the name of the character, but um, the character who plays the operative in, um, or the, well, the character of the operative in Serenity where he has that speech that he gives oh, to Malcolm, that, oh, Captain Malcolm Reynolds God, about how yes. he understands very clearly he has no place in the utopia that he's building, that he's a monster and he needs to be a monster to get to utopia, but he has no place in that. And I sort of recognized a more, a more nuanced version of that speech in what, in what Luthen was saying mm-hmm. that, mm. you know, that this, I, I am not who I want to be here. I, I recognize mm-hmm. that, that this is not, this is not the the world that I'm working towards. It's just the only way to get there. Yeah, yeah. I sacrifice my soul so that other people can live a better life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I feel like we right could. About that. I feel like we could go on mm-hmm. for three hours just listing everything <laughs> yeah. that's great about this show. Um, but so I want to move on from that and talk about: Is there any? Does anyone have any criticisms of the show? Uh, so Matt, do you have any uh, <laughs> any criticisms at all of this amazing show? Well. Uh, so th- th- there's a couple things that come to mind. Uh, one <laughs> is that, you know, uh, so first of all, I love the way that this show kind of gets divided up into these three act little mm. sort of mini sagas. Um, they feel very contained. And the second of these trilogies is um, sort of the, the heist, right? The Imperial base heist. Yeah. Um, which I mean, is some of the most, in like tense yep. television I've ever watched. And yet a vast mm-hmm. majority of it is just people standing in the woods talking. <laughs> and so my criticism is 
now I'm going to have to tolerate decades of Star Wars fan films that are just people standing in the woods talking. Uh, <laughs> so like, oh, it's a Star Wars now. Um, so that's one. The well, other... Actually, Go, me, do you want me, to comment on think, that? Yeah, let yeah. me pick up on that because, yeah, I mean, one thing, one of the few criticisms or at least like, um, what would you, misgivings I had watching the show was when there was the prison break and I sort of heard mm. Aaron's voice in my head complaining about the obligatory <laughs> prison break in every uh, TV show. Yeah. And it sort of occurred to me that this is almost like this, this tracks the movie solo really closely in in weird ways you know you have the reluctant hero who ends up joining the rebellion basically at the end and along the way he participates in a big heist and a prison break mm-hmm. um and i was just wondering how people if anyone else if that occurred to anyone else that this is sort of like solo like almost like a like a really really good remake of solo but but track but tracks these sort of you know it, it takes these real oh, these you know it, it's it's um executed really 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 well but maybe takes these sort of overdone things as its um structure underlying structure Hmm. it didn't occur to me personally i i mean it definitely is the case that that the the heist is a box to tick and the prison break is a box (laughs) to tick um but i am i don't have a problem with tropes if they're done well and you don't Mm -hmm. notice the seams and I, I didn't notice the seams. They didn't seem like stitched on like a patch after the fact to add some extra action because we couldn't think of anything better. They they did seem to fit within the story. Uh, Andrea, were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to say that Solo made such little impression on me that I they, I was like, there's a prison break in Solo. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I watched it. I know I watched it. I do not remember the anything about it. Other than one or two things that I was like, well, same, this is same. the reason I hate they, this. Yeah, they, they, I just they, do they not like, remember the just story. Just like the at droid all. uprising and the Wookies in the cages that they free mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, I, vaguely remember I the Wookies. <laughs> I, I, but yeah, it, that's how little an impression it made on me. I'm just kind of like, yeah, I sort yeah. of remember something with Wookies. Uh, that's it. No, I mean, fair, fair enough. But so, Matt, what was your second thing you were going to say? I think that after the just the wire was pulled so tight for so long on the show. Yeah. I think I expected more of a payoff in the final episode. A lot of the, and people are going to be like, what? There's so much incredible (laughs) stuff that happens in the final episode. It's true. There is. But I think that like there's, there's messaging in the show that, you know, to, to defeat an empire, you kind of have to become a terrorist and to defeat an empire, people are going to have to die. Like there are going to be sacrifices. And so I felt like in some ways, maybe like in the spirit of realism, the body count should have been higher. It felt like even the suicide bomber survived like a very strange beat. Um, you know, Bix is traumatized, obviously, at the end, but gets out okay. Um, you know, I, I guess I just, I, I expected it to be more of maybe I expected it more to be that this was going to be Andor's moment to be standing amongst the flames going, what have I done rather than for everyone to kind of just like win and escape at the end. Um, And to me, it sort of feels like, you know, he boxes up his whole family and puts them on a ship and sends them off. And it's like, well, so they're flying to planet Mandyville never to be seen again. And now we're going to have this, you know, more political intrigue and, and revolution in the second season. So I, I guess I just, I, I, 
I kind of wanted, I, I would have been happy given that they've all, like, we already know how the story ends, right? Everyone dies in a ball of fire. Mm-hmm. So, so what, why are we holding on to some of these characters? Couldn't we give them more um, definitive conclusions? Um, that was something that to me felt a little bit um, um, absent. And then as a, you know, another thing is that I I did allude to this earlier, but um, the, you know, the, the obvious romantic relationship between Mon Mothma's cousin and her partner, um, I felt they were really kind of beating around the bush with that for no reason um, other than to keep like LGBT relationships off screen. Um, uh, that felt to me like it, like, come on guys, it's, it's 2022. Let's, let's, um, like this stuff can be text. It doesn't have to be subtext anymore. Mm-hmm. Or it can just go away. Like one of the two do or do not, there is no try. This, this is kind <laughs> of like, I, I, I wanted to see more of that relationship or less of it. Yeah. I would have been happy with either choice. Yeah. But it just, I, it just seemed like they were ticking a box. Yeah, it felt like there, you know, there are some scenes between the two of them where obviously they've got some baggage, and I couldn't figure out quite what the disagreement was between with them. Um, so I kind of wanted to dig more into that. I, I, it, to me, it felt like the Val character was more into it, and the uh, what's the other woman's name? Um, Senta. Senta was she was uh, committed to the cause. That's all she cared about. She was, she, you know, that relationship came second to her. And I think Val was upset by that. And that's what I think the issue between them was. Yeah. Val we, wants, you know, go ahead. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, I, mm-hmm. I just think we were told that and we're not shown that. And I think it would be more effective if we had any investment ourselves as viewers in that relationship. But because we don't see any of it, Val's pain that we're supposed to feel at her disappointment that that her partner is not as invested in the relationship as she is, it doesn't really land because we're also not invested in it. For me, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I yeah, I agree with that. Um, Andrea, do you, do you have any other criticisms of the show that occurred to you as you were watching it? Uh, I I feel bad about saying this, but I kind of felt like it sagged a little, like in the second half. Um, I think maybe it was because the, the, uh, heist episode, which Matt, you know, Matt said was the tensest, you know, really tense. I thought that was one of the tensest, most tense episodes of television I, I have ever seen. I was digging my fingernails into my palms as I'm watching it. And it's the whole episode. Like it doesn't let up. Um, and I think maybe after the high of that, things felt a little quiet to me. Maybe some of the scenes with Mon Mothba could have been cut a little, but you know, I feel also that I'm, yeah, I'm cherry picking things to say about it. Um, overall, I thought it was just brilliant. So, you know, that's that's my only. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, um, you know, like I said, I, I was riveted by the entire show, but I do feel like when I think yeah. back on it, the the big heist is definitely the the thing that sticks is foremost in yeah, my mind yeah. more so think- than. Some of the other the episode immediately after that, so episode seven, to me, you see this on a lot of other shows too. It's the episode that gets you from place to place. 
like 24 was mm-hmm. always really guilty of this. Like mm-hmm. you've got the three episode set piece, this three episode set piece, right? You've got the heist is, you know, four, five, six. You've got the prison, which is like eight and nine, and then a little bit of mm-hmm. 10. And it like, there's this, this one bit in the middle. It's like, how do we get all these characters from where they are at the end of six to where they need to be in eight? Uh, we're going to figure it out in the next 45 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, it, it is a lot of process and not a lot of drama. Well, actually, um, now that you say that, because I have my list of things that, and these are all really minor, but but pretty much yeah. all the things that sort of struck a wrong note to me fell right around that point, right? I thought when, um, this is one of the, the guys who joins them on the big heist, this guy, Arvel Skeen, uh, all of a sudden he's like, um, you know, let's just take the money and run and leave everybody behind. That seemed a little out of nowhere to me. I love that scene. I love okay. that scene. <laughs> All right. Well, I really love a, that scene. Put a, put a pin in that. Yeah. Um, when I'll Cassian was apprehended by the K2SO style um, Imperial droid, mm-hmm. that seemed a little goofy to me. Like, yeah, agree. Um, and then the, um, the, the whole idea that um, uh, Luthen wants Vel to kill Cassian seemed a little nonsensical to me. Um, and that's, those were really, I think those were basically my only, only things that struck a bit of a wrong note to me. Um, but those all kind of basically came up around that time, the transitioning between the, you know, at coming mm-hmm. out of the heist into the, the other stuff. The, the two places that made me wrinkle my nose, I've mentioned one of them already, um, was that opening, um, that opening sequence in flashback of the, of the, the hunter gatherer society um, that, that Cassian is born into um, for the reasons that I outlined that I think it's a a fairly sort of two dimensional portrayal. Um, And what I don't like about that and what I don't like about it in general, not just in star Wars is that it often treats these people as though they have no agency and no complexity. They're just kind of there to be a victim and to have something horrible happen to them. And so I kind of also wrinkled my nose during the religious ceremony that takes place um, during the heist that they use as the cover because I kept waiting for, and one of the things that I don't know if it was just my settings, but you don't get any translation of what those guys are saying around the fire, right? It just says that they're speaking Aldani, but you don't actually know what they're saying. Yeah. That was, that was a bit of an interesting choice, but I kept waiting for, um, for something to happen there and that would have given them some agency in a role. Instead, they're treated as a sort of a piece of background. Um, and again, they're not really given any sort of, it's just a very sort of two dimensional portrayal of something, something indigenous culture. And I, I would have liked them to, to give that a little bit more flesh and, and what I kept expecting to happen and what I kind of wanted to happen was for our heroes meticulously laid plans to be, to be thrown, have a monkey wrench thrown into that by something that the local people did um, as an act of rebellion, because they seem to be setting it up because they, the, the Imperial outpost, the commander of that has this ceremony with the local population where they exchange sheepskins. And he's Mm -hmm. very contemptuous of that. And he, you know, seems to think that they're really into these sheepskins or whatever. But as he walks away, the elder turns and chucks it in the fire and says something that isn't translated, but is clearly contemptuous. And I kind of was expecting them to stage an act of rebellion of their own, however modest, 
that threw a spotlight someplace inconvenient or drew a spotlight from someplace yeah. inconvenient or some just mm, gave them well, a role to play other than to jump up and down and chant in yeah, an exotic it, manner. It, I guess it did strike me a little odd that they cast an actor as amazing as Brian Cranston. And then he didn't have a lot to do in that. Was it Brian Cranston? Wasn't oh, it? that's so funny. Cause it, I don't know. I said to my husband, I'm it? like, oh, look, it's space Brian Cranston. But I wasn't being serious. <laughs> was it? Oh, I thought it I was. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. It certainly looked like him. <laughs> Scratch that if if that's wrong. But um, um, well, let me come back to Matt though. So you said so. So my my issue with the Arvel Skeen thing was that it just seems a little odd that he would have signed up for this basically suicide mission, and 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 pretend you know and fooled all these people that he was a a committed rebel this whole time when all he really wanted was the money. I don't know. So, but but that that worked for you. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it definitely is surprising um, and against everything that he's presented and the other characters have presented about him as a character. But of course, like he he disables that criticism by, you know, coming right out and being like, yeah, I'm a bold-faced liar. Um, part of me wonders if, you know, there are people who get involved in insurgencies um, for selfish reasons, um, even if it is dangerous sometimes because you don't have any other options. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so, so, and like, it's not just like, so from that perspective, I thought that it, it made sense. And then once he was safe and once the money was in hand, then maybe he feels more comfortable coming out and saying, you know, basically who he is for real. Um, and the thing that I love about that sequence is Andor's reaction to it. Um, which is like very, maybe is an Obi-Wan reaction, uh, like original trilogy, Obi-Wan reaction. Thinking about how he just like cuts that dude's arm off in the cantina. <laughs> um, but not, but not a Luke Skywalker kind of reaction. Um, and, and as I'm listening to the monologue from the guy explaining the, what he wants the plan to be with Andor, I'm thinking in my head, like, how does he get out of this? I have no idea what he could possibly bang. He's dead. <laughs> like, it's like that to me was so, um, ruthless. And, I like seeing that more ruthless side of rebellion. Uh, and and it, it it felt in character with some of the debates that Andor gets into with Jyn Erso in Rogue One. It's like there is, he has this ruthlessness about him in that, in that film as well. Um, so seeing it play out, there's a few moments like that where he uses the simple solution, the Indiana Jones solution of just mm -hmm. blasting the guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah so I, it, was, it was compelling I, yeah. to watch that. I think I think that it's once again we come back to the moral ambiguity thing. Um, you know, I I kind of knew he was going to do it because I I just I, and I think it's just because I knew knew the character from Rogue One. Um, I think for that scene, what might have made it better, what might have made Skeen a better, more complex character, was that it was all true. His whole brother thing was true. Agree, but and he's then he changed taking his mind in the moment. He t yeah, he took the opportunity. This this opportunity presented itself, and I'm going to take it. And would have made a much more com complex character there. Couldn't agree mm. more. Like he and it makes and it, it gets rid of the incoherence that Dave mentioned because you can believe that mm. he's invested seven months eating roots or whatever it is they say they've been doing in the forest. He's invested all this time, and he really does have. Um, he thinks he's working to a higher purpose. He's got revenge on his mind. He's got principles on his mind. He's been mm -hmm. listening to his friend come up with this complex manifesto. Um, and then when push comes to shove and that shiny thing is dangled in front of him, all of yeah. that 
disappears and he makes the the mercenary choice. Yeah. I think that and that would have yeah. been a gut punch for for us to watch yep. this character just lose it and be disappointed in him and it just would have been a yeah. lot more effective and you'd still get the the bang for your buck <laughs> in terms of the drama <laughs> yeah, because you still have head. the tension and you'd still have yeah, yeah, yeah. Cassian and, and, pulling and, the Han Solo under the table right and you see you you see uh, like a very real threat manifest as well it's like this is a challenge that they're that the rebels are always going to have to to deal with mm-hmm. it's yeah. like how do you pay these people to fight a war for you it's a big part of Mon Mothma's whole journey throughout the season is trying to solve that problem. And so you're mm-hmm. seeing it at both, but both at like the top end of how are we going to fund this thing? And at the bottom end of individuals that are in the trenches saying, well, what if my own personal profit is more important than your rebellion? And you, yeah. and you yeah. get that so often in actual rebellions. And you think about a place like, like the Congo where you've got people who are nominally on the other side of a war and, and maybe they thought, and maybe they really believed that that's what was going on at the beginning. But in the end, you have the, the insurgents and the regular army exchanging, uh, you know, gold or uh, gorillas yep. or whatever it is that they're poaching to fund themselves. Mm-hmm. And they end up being on the same team. And it's the team of me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's 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 yeah. come back to Mon Mothma. Actually, I want to mention, mention, so I just Googled Brian Cranston Andor. And apparently he is not in it, but there are a lot of people who think that he was because the actor looked exactly. <laughs> he like looks. Him. He definitely. I knew exactly as soon as you said it. I had actually forgotten that I that I was like space Brian Cranston. <laughs> um, but so, but so, Aaron. So you said that I want to come back to the thing about your UN experience. You said that there were these scenes that just made you cringe involving Mon Mothma because they were so accurate to your experience. Could you say more about that? Yeah, not just Mon Mothma. Actually, the one that made me cringe the most is the scene where, and I don't remember his name, but where the commanding officer of the Imperial outpost in Aldani is talking to his superior who's visiting. Um, they're talking about the local population in this very sort of sneering and contemptuous way, sort of making fun mm-hmm. of their traditions. And then these, you know, these ridiculous people and they, you know, they, of course they think the celestial thing is holy rolls eyes and, you know, they want goat skins and all this kind of stuff. And you still see so much of that. You see so much of it, not just like uh, among, you know, imperialist forces, but in, in, you see that among diplomats. You see that among foreign aid workers a lot. Um, and it's even people who think they're there to help, who legitimately believe that they're there to help will have these moments of just being, um, just contemptuous. And uh, uh, yeah, so that really, that really did make me cringe. But, um, but watching sort of the performative quality of how Mon Mothma goes through her life um, and sort of the empty theater of, of diplomacy in some ways. Um, I, I really liked that storyline. I'm not sure how I feel about the storyline with the daughter um, where, where that's kind of the moral choice that she has to make, but, but what she's doing in terms of um, putting on this show and investing so much in looking like the consummate diplomat and playing her role as an ambassador while all of the real conversations are happening behind closed doors, definitely felt very accurate to me. Mm-hmm. You're talking about life the, the, in the embassy looked accurate. There's this sort of subplot where she's um, moved all this money around to fund the rebellion. And now people are going to be looking for that money. And so she has to um, marry off her daughter to this crime Lord to, to uh, 
refill her. Yeah. Get the money. And the fact that she has to rely on a crime lord, I think, I mean, it it just, (laughs) it really does feel, I'm not suggesting I've witnessed an ambassador rely on a crime lord, (laughs) but I've definitely, you know, I've definitely heard stories of that kind of thing happening. Um, And yeah, the, the life at the embassy and the, you know, parties and who sits where and why that's important and how her husband is inviting people that she can't be seen with and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's small. Mm-hmm. None of it amounts to much in the end, but it, it just gave it the right bells and whistles to feel genuine to me. Mm-hmm. And also defines their relationship, uh, their, their very bad relationship going on between her and her husband. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The two the two choices that she makes in the final episode are actually, I think, one of the highlights of it. That you know, first that she chooses to marry off her daughter to this to this crime lord, and then the other mm-hmm. that she basically sets her husband up yep. to be the guilty party <laughs> for the money that's disappeared. Which um, is brilliant. Yeah. But why did she? Yeah, it is both? brilliant. I, I think that. Well, I mean, it brilliant depending on how you feel about the husband. I mean, he's a sap and a loser, but he doesn't seem to me like to have a lot of malice in him and um you know what i was i you mentioned earlier uh luthan's like kind of epic soliloquy about selling your soul for the rebellion Mm. Uh, we see her starting to do that i mean she's doing it right before our Mm. eyes yeah and i think it's i i think it's quite deliberate that he's for that luthan is further along on that journey than mon mothma is when you think about the context of the rest of this of of Star Wars, right? Mon Mothma is around and stays around. Luthen is not around. We don't know why, but he's not. Um, and so, in my mind, it adds a new, a, a, a new and much deeper context to her character overall. To think that these, you know, that these were the very real sacrifices that she was making, not just like sacrifices of her family, but but of her own morality um, mm-hmm. in order in order to 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 power the the goal the true goal um yeah and you know i'm reminded of like her 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 vague line in um uh in return of the jedi that that has captivated the minds of expanded universe authors for generations of many bothans died yeah. to bring us yeah. this information <laughs> right it's like i kept thinking it through every scene with her <laughs> that was where in are my the head. bothans yeah. yeah who are the bothans and why did they die right but it, but you know the truth is like there's it's funny when i see criticisms of the show people saying like it doesn't feel like star wars it's like it feels it feels very Star Wars, you know? It's like, yeah, it's always yeah. been about this. It's just the style of storytelling is really exactly. not the content. Yeah. Well, and this whole yeah. concept of going over to the dark side. And, you know, as yeah. you say, Luthen's farther down that path. Well, we don't know where he's going to end up. Yeah. Before, right, before- exactly. Can I just say one more yeah, yeah. thing, Dave? Which is that, you know, it, it, thinking about the dark side here, right? Like, you, it's all much more surface in the in, in most of the franchise right you literally see darth vader choking the life of out of an officer Mm -hmm. before our eyes yeah that's different from like uh cyril sitting in that cubicle in a endless grid of cubicles literally getting like getting the life choked out of him you know um it's just it's a different way of telling the same it's it's a it's a more metaphorical way of telling the same story yeah okay so before that was horrifying before we run out of time the other thing i really want to talk about is that you know, this show is so much better than the other Star Wars shows, in my opinion. Like going from mm-hmm. watching this, I, then I went back and rewatched or and watched uh, Boba Fett and Obi Wan, 
And it was like, you almost can't believe that the same species created both things. I mean, there's yeah. so there's such a <laughs> disjunction in quality between them. Um, but my understanding is that in terms of ratings, the Obi-Wan show did by far the best, and then the Boba Fett show, and then this is trailing, you know, behind both oh, of those. And, is that surprising in any way? Well, and so what I want to- Is it, does it- Go ahead. I was just going to say, is it, do you think it's a function of it being a Disney show, uh, being on Disney and not being a Disney style show? There's no, there's no kids in this really. Well, um, we, well, what I'm wondering is like, yeah, what do you attribute that to? Is it something to do with this show itself? Is it that it doesn't have a recognizable character headlining that. it so much? Um, is it the fact that the other shows have kind of, you know, the, the people like me were sort of have sort of lost interest in Star Wars because there's been so many misses re- recently. Um, I'm just curious what people's uh, take on that is. I think a combination of those things. Like if if I think about my own experience, just from that very narrow prism, um, I wasn't going to watch it um, because of that. Uh, because I would, I had been disappointed in the previous ones, and maybe I, maybe I would have tuned in if it had a headliner. Although probably not, because I didn't tune into Obi Wan Kenobi. And mm. it's just, it's, it's not surprising, and it's the, the sort of the central problem of, of having these, these big IP things. That's, it's a blessing and a curse, because <laughs> it's, it's what get, it's what gets people to tune in, but then it comes with a whole bunch of baggage and expectations that, in trying to service that you end up delivering something that isn't a very good quality because it's built by committee. Mm-hmm. And, and I think like, I, I hope that people will learn about this show and that they'll have a little bit of patience with it and let it build its audience because it seems to, I don't know, Dave, you would know presumably better than me what the buzz has been around it because I've, kind of deliberately not paid attention to that has it got pretty good buzz well the, the critical reception has been super positive i think it's like 96 percent on rotten tomatoes um i think mm. there's a contingent of the star wars fandom who thinks it's not star you know it doesn't feel like matt's saying doesn't feel enough like star wars um but one thing i heard is that each episode of this did better than the one before whereas for the other shows mm. each episode did worse that than the one sense. before that makes a lot of sense because that's how I felt about, you know, Kenobi was, Obi-Wan was just, I was like, oh, I kind of like this first episode and maybe the second one, it's not so bad. And then it just, oh my God, it just slid down the hill of crap <laughs> that it was built on. Um, I, I actually think that in some ways that phenomenon explains the, the, the dip in viewership of this show. You know, it's coming on the tail of a number of star Wars show releases, like kind of back to back. And, you know, it's yeah. like any series, you know, the third, the third volume is rarely going to sell better than the first volume. So I think for some people it's just fatigue. I also think that it is kind of an acquired taste. Um, you know, it is, it is a more intelligent and more literary mm-hmm. show than a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. that's on um, that streaming service. So I can absolutely, and it's not a criticism. I mean, I, I, I absolutely can see why some people would not be, um, would have trouble kind of like grabbing onto it. I, I, I mean, I'll yeah. confess like in the first episode, like halfway through, I was like, I just want subtitles on. There's so many weird proper nouns. Oh, yeah. Um, it's yeah. like, I just want to be able to track what's happening better. And then by the second episode, I was like, I knew who all the characters were and I didn't really need that anymore. Um, but, but it, it's, it is, it, it is not, um, it is not passive viewing. Um, well, it really, it, I think it mm-hmm. takes an active mind to engage. And it's not, it's not for everybody. It's not a kid's show. I don't think. I mean, no, I mean, it, well, 
And that also explains, I think, why why Disney may not have been so gung ho about uh, su- supporting it. Like, um, you know, what action figure yeah. are you going? It's the Bix gets tortured yeah. playset. You know, like yeah. what? <laughs> what are you going to sell? I would buy that. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I would put that robot on a T-shirt. Like that was a that was he, a oh, droid. So expressive oh. for just a stack oh. of metal. Yeah, I have. Ne- I cried. I'm, I'm a droid made me cry. I mean, legitimately made. I was sobbing. That, and like that. What is that? What is that? <laughs> and that's the and that's the uh, the fun character. That's the the comic relief character. Right. And I cried. <laughs> oh. Well, so, so, I mean, it kind of makes me wonder. I mean, you know, is part of the reason this show is so good is because. You know, in a, in a way, they took the easy route of not putting in the goofier stuff, the goofy aliens, yes. the goofy force powers and stuff. And like, could if could they start introducing more of those things in an intelligent, literate way? Or is there just a is it just I impossible it to take some of those stuff <laughs> serious? Some of that stuff no. seriously. I, I, depends. It depends on what you mean by goofy. I think you can have humor without being goofy per se. Um, I, I would like to highlight the example from the Mandalorian of the two stormtroopers arguing on the speeder bikes, which is, or is it, it's the Mandal- yeah. it is the Mandalorian, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the Taika Waititi episode, which is like the best scene in the whole first season, I think. But, but also there's a lot of um, office style absurdist humor that you can bring into any bureaucratic situation. Mm-hmm. Bureaucracy is ripe, ripe for that. It's, it's, you, you could bring in a lot of humor that isn't necessarily uh, goofy alien humor or goofy droids or whatever. Um, that's more of the dark humor uh, variety. I think there would be tons of space for that. And it's just really a question of making sure you put it in the right places in a way that doesn't give the audience whiplash. And don't overdo it. Yep. You know, that uh, uh, this continues to go back to my point of why I think Rogue One and this one are the best thing out of Star Wars ever maybe um is that there aren't these comic relief characters making jokes running around in the middle of a you know a firefight making jokes it's serious people are dying why are we making funny jokes and i agree with you erin that you can do you know in that office kind of way um but it can't it, it can't be the point of uh, of a single character to be funny because it just doesn't no. ring with me you know no that was the my problem with the character. last jedi it was my problem with the uh, with jedi with uh sorry the last jedi i think that was the middle one of the yeah. of the sequels it starts out with a freaking joke it starts out with a joke and then they go right into thousands of people dying and I was just like, "Where is there a tone problem here?" And that was right in the beginning, and it kind but, of went downhill from there. And I know, Je- I know, Dave, you like it, right? Well, that's what I was going to say. Is that I mean, I I've always wanted it to take itself more seriously and be darker and more adult and everything. But I mean, like New Hope is about people cracking jokes while running around during a firefight. I mean, so you know, if someone says like, "This isn't the Star Wars that I know," I mean, that's kind of true in a way, but. You watch that as a child and it's an epic, you know, it's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a kid's movie, but it would, that's what it was, you know, uh, Han Solo and the, and C3PO and R2D2, those are the funny characters. 
Um, but that's a different movie. And it's, this is a different, t- and I'm an adult now. And it's fun to watch that in a nostalgic way, but it's not an, you know, it's not a serious, uh, it's got serious parts of it. But at the end of the day, this is an adult show. And yeah. that's what I'm gravitating to as an, as an adult person. No, 100% what I want is a show that makes, that seems to me now the way that A New Help, Hope seemed to me when I was five, you know, and it seemed very serious and scary and, you know, adult when I was five. But it's but, not. But you were five and great characters. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, for a five year old, yeah. But but also, I mean, I think there are yeah, there are moments in A New Hope. I I kind of want want to watch all of the Star Wars all over again before I make this comment. But it, my memory <laughs> of it is that the the humor got progressively goofier um, mm-hmm. as the franchise went on, and which isn't to mm-hmm. say there isn't some goofy humor in A New Hope because there definitely is. But there's also I I have I think there's all kinds of space and room for for wry asides of the of the type that Han Solo makes. I think the best joke in A New Hope is when he tells Oh no wait is it Empire Strikes Back when he tells Leia he didn't have time to run it through committee, and it's just completely sort of an offhanded remark. Um, I loved that. I think there's. There's room for that sort of occasional. Yeah, I quit. I agree with you there. <laughs> um, it's sarcasm. There's a, there's, you know, that kind of sarcasm. Which, as we all know, I is get. the highest form of humor. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> That's how I live my life. <laughs> I want to, I want to get yeah. mad at, yeah. that, that, like, what do you think, Matt, of this basic tension? Like, is Star Wars for kids or adults or, you know, does it, I, I guess, you know, does it, is, I, like, I feel like, yeah, it's, I want an adult Star Wars movie but some people Um, don't i guess and that's legitimate it seems to me i i i can't i i I can't i can't tell what people want anymore people want to complain (laughs) on the internet i mean that's really what it comes (laughs) down to you know like especially star wars people yeah Yeah, there's a everyone has their own internal barometer dave i i mean i know that you and i have been we've had we've been at big group dinners where we've had like it fierce debates about when star wars stopped being good quote unquote right and it's like <laughs> I, I hurtful things have been said about return of the jedi exactly I, and and I, and i and i i i, and I don't I, disagree with that i would die by that movie the way that andrea would die by rogue one which i also I love, think is great it you know it's like so for me it's really just like i think as these there look there's this handful of mega franchises that are out there right marvel Star Wars, um, not many others, right? But as they get bigger and bigger, they have to open up to more forms of storytelling. You see that a little bit with Marvel movies, with like the Doctor Strange ones, a little bit more like horror, and the Ant-Man ones are a little bit sillier, and the Mm -hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy ones also have prison breaks and heists in them. Um, And then, but but then for, for Star Wars, it's also doing the same thing. And so I don't think that you need to feel like you're not a true Star Wars fan if everything that is star wars is not for you guarantee Mm -hmm. you there's some video games floating out there that are not for everybody but then there's others that are really good some of them are very casual about their violence some of them are very serious about their violence um so it's you know as they get bigger and there are more products um some things are going to be for you some things are not going to be for you and that's okay well said yep the, the galaxy, the galaxy, of the universe is very big, and it it doesn't <laughs> vex me at all that there are different flavors of Star Wars for for different consumers. Yeah. I just yeah. hope yeah. that 
um, that Disney has the the sort of patience to be hands off with this and let this show really continue to hit its stride and and maximize its potential because you know the temptation will of course be to go back to some of that more simplistic storytelling that yeah. um, that has been a, a hallmark of the franchise up until this point. Um, and, you know, I think the the debate that allegedly happened around the ending of Rogue One, where there was a strong pushback against the idea that everybody dies at the end. Um, <laughs> Rogue One was, in a sense, the sort of big bang, if you'll forgive the pun, <laughs> of, you know, bringing in canon character death, or at least um, main character death, um, in into it as the sort of ending. Like, everybody, the everybody dies ending is not something I think anybody expected from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've sort of broken the seal on that. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not wishing for game of Thrones level um, violence and darkness by any stretch, but I do think that there is room for this more political sophistication and hopefully Disney continues to see that. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, apparently only so. going to be one more season of this show that they had originally planned out five, but then when they saw how, large the scale had gotten how many characters and stuff they were just like let's just do two and lead it into rogue one and then wrap it up there um which like on on the one hand i think (sighs) is too bad because the show is so good but on the other hand i'm like i don't want this show to to overstay its welcome and yeah it might really go down yeah and and you know with with the tag on the um last episode episode 12 with the construction of the death star like how much longer can it go on? You know, mm. uh, there's the clock's ticking on that story. Yeah, but but so then the question I think is, you know, will Disney or will other Star Wars shows or other shows in general take a cue from this? And I think they will. I mean, um, you know, Rory Carroll when he, he he recommended this, I listened to this podcast called The Watch where they interviewed Tony Gilroy a few times and stuff. And on that podcast, they were saying that, you know, they live in L.A. and they're screenwriters, the hosts. And they said every screenwriter in Hollywood is saying to themselves, like, Tony Gilroy is just taking this to a a whole other level. He's so much better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Like, we're just learning from this example. And I hope that's the case. Mm. Yep. Yep. There was this. It really was uh, a how-to in writing and television um, production and directing everything I watched, I learned from. Um, and I, and I hope that it's not know. just the, the, the writers of, uh, of other star Wars shows that are paying attention. Um, I'm looking at you rings of power, <laughs> the, the, the sort of the, the opposite of the, you know, you take this big beloved IP that has all this Epic stuff going on and you start, um, I think it was Matt when you said some, something about how you, you start, Star Wars, A New Hope starts at this very sort of nitty gritty level and ends up epic and everything after that had to start from that epic starting point. Um, And I think Rings of Power has really made that mistake in spades. Uh, And I think that's always going to be the temptation when you have these big box properties is that you've got to be more epic. There needs to be more dragons and more explosions and more, you know, more, 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 more. And at the expense of, of resonant storytelling, And hopefully what these guys have shown is that you can take one of those big box properties and use it in the best possible way, which is that a universe that feels lived in, that feels three-dimensional and fleshed out, and then focus on the story and the characters from there on in. And the rest of it really is just cinematography. Yeah. All right. So we're we're out of time. So we're going to have to get into some final thoughts. Um, But yeah, 
Uh, well, so how about Matt? What are your final thoughts on Andor? <laughs> well, let's do the lightning round. So a couple more <laughs> shout outs. Once again, Fiona Shaw crushing it. Um, fresh off of uh, um, uh, Killing Eve. I, uh, I, I had trouble um, trusting her in the beginning, but <laughs> managed to. I thought she did a really phenomenal job. Um, also, shout out to um, uh, uh, to uh, Luthen's uh, office assistant, um, <laughs> who I think might be the real beating heart of the rebellion. <laughs> um, I felt like she stole every scene that she was in um you know scolding him when he gets a little bit out of control she's all about the mission i really like that about her character i really hope nothing bad happens to her i don't want her to, to end up as a like valuable lesson for luthan in the second season mm-hmm. um but actually with that in mind i was kind of impressed that not a lot of not a lot of uh not a lot of people got fridged in this series which which is a nice change of pace um you know and th- just a ton of really strong um, female characters. I think I think there's more female characters in Andor than in the totality <laughs> of all other Star Wars. Yeah. Um, so you know, props again to the writers and the whole cast. Um, you know, it, again, it's like I, I really think that this um, this shows set the bar not just for Star Wars but for all television. Um, it's incredibly dense, um, but manages to still be very tense and exciting. Um, so I'm I'm really looking forward to more of this kind of thing. Um, and, and then, uh, yeah, so I, my hope is, yeah, my hope is that second season, um, comes out just as strong. They stick the landing. Uh, I think it might be one of the greatest TV shows of all time. And then Dave, before uh, there was one other question I had, I don't know if uh, maybe there's no time for one time. Well, so one thing I have seen come up and I find this to be a, you know, in, in within the context of this sort of we've talked a lot about empire today and you know w- there is an irony in the fact that a giant litigious mega corporation is the uh funder and producer of this series <laughs> 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 uh i don't know if that's worth talking about but i find i you know i i find it compelling and i, I i've even seen some of my more bleeding hearted liberal friends um you know sort of biting their nails thinking about the the contradiction here i guess but who else is going to fund a 450 million dollar tv show exactly well that's well you know i'm reminded of like all of the emperors and kings and queens who have funded art throughout the centuries how you know how many masterworks have been produced by the catholic church or by the Mm -hmm. you know the the medici's or borgias or you know the rockefellers and and westinghouses of their day so yes it has always kind of been the way that that things get done. Um, but you know, I'm, I, I, I'm grateful at least that, that the show's out there and that it's, um, you know, it, it's coming at a very, I think, important time in our society. I'm mm-hmm. glad that people are using it to start these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess one good thing about capitalism is that corporations respond to incentives. And so if the audience wants something, even if it's something that pushes a message that's counter to the interests of that big corporation, the corporation is going to do it if it's going to make the money. So, you know, I mean, there's all, all gray areas and compromise, you know, life is full of gray Mm -hmm. areas and compromises and and everything. But, you know, if people want quality products that have thoughtful, intelligent messages, 
you know, capitalism will provide that if that's uh, if there's a market for it. Right. So so they need to hurry up and work on that ISB Lego um, Lego box. <laughs> <that> could- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the torture place at you know, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah please please I've got a lot of rage to get out <laughs> look uh, the the floor when you push this button the floor of the prison set lights up yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrea final push the thought. button just keep pushing the button um uh, I agree with uh, what Matt said um. You know, it just as he was talking about the large corporations funding uh, great art, it's like art, great art is always bit in the hand that feeds it. Um, you know, it's it, a lot of what we have today, Shakespeare, um, uh, Greek plays, you know, all of that good deal of it bit the hand, you know, the hand that fed it. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think maybe some people don't realize that they don't see the message. So they don't understand the irony or don't recognize the irony in it, um, which is sad. Um, but, you know, as he said, it's ve- the very timely, the march of the creep of fascism um, in this story is really what people need to see right now. Um, and I hope they see that message in it. Um, just overall, I just want to say that the scenes between uh, Karn and his mother are some of the tensest, <laughs> messed up family, dysfunctional family things I've ever seen. And um, <laughs> God, I want more of that. I so want more of that. But yeah, it's it's for me, the best thing I've seen out of Star Wars since Rogue One. Um, and I really appreciate them making shows for me, um, adult shows that really show what war is like and really show what sacrifice is like um, in order to um, promote and and save liberty. Um, Yeah. So I can't recommend this show highly enough. And Aaron, final thoughts. Uh, Final thoughts. Obviously I loved the show. I have a wish list for season two. Um, it includes somebody, I, I want to see the, the imperialist bureaucrat who legitimately believes that they're saving the universe. Um, and that, <laughs> you know, they, they, they see, they see imperial overreach and they see some of these problems, but they, they argue that it's for the greater good and they're, they're trying to, you know, do the right thing from within and they're trying to civilize the galaxy because I think that's a huge part of the imperialist experience. And, and I would like to see that, um, that poor misguided soul. Um, I would like to see more of the Mon Mothma storyline. And in that storyline, I would love to see. Um, so she's made a lot of, she's by the end of the season made some very personal sacrifices for the rebellion. I'd like to see her make some political sacrifices for the rebellion. I'd like to see some vote trading in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those dirty backroom deals that you have to sort of bite your tongue and, and, and get it done in order for, for your agenda to move forward. Um, because I think people have a, a hyper simplistic view of how politics really happens in the real world. And that it would be great to have a look at what it actually looks like. And then on the flip side, um, Cassian has, has made some sacrifices, but I'd like to see him make some more personal sacrifices um, in season two. And this is a bit to Matt's point about that last episode. Um, He hasn't had to pay the piper yet. Really the only real loss that he suffered is um, the loss of his mother um, which was through natural causes. And so it wasn't anything that was connected to the rebellion in any way. I'm saying in his adult life, obviously he's 
suffered some huge loss uh, as a child that we only have a very fuzzy picture of so far. But I would like to see him make um, make the sorts of sacrifices that some of the other characters are making. So that's my wish list for season two. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just say again, I mean, obviously the show is incredible and please just everybody watch it, spread the word about it, get your friends to watch it. You know, I mean, it's, it's so good. It deserves a higher, um, you know, higher ratings than it's gotten so far. And I definitely want to see more shows like this. This is the kind of show that I, especially the kind of star Wars show that I've been, you know, pining after for for all these years so you know please let's all just give it up give it as much support as we can um okay but let's wrap things up there so we've been speaking with aaron Lindsay, andrea kale and matt london so thanks everyone so much for joining us thank you thanks dave thanks and that was our panel so big thanks again to aaron Lindsay, andrea kale and matt london for joining us on the show This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 